All right, we're very excited tonight to have as our guest a man whom Jeffrey Tucker of the Mises Institute said would be looked at as having one of the greatest impacts on the philosophies of liberty and anti-statism in history. He's a man who needs no introduction, but we'll give him one anyway. He is Stefan Molyneux, author of 10 books of which I know, probably more, including Everyday Anarchism, The Handbook of Human Ownership, and On Truth, The Tyranny of Illusion. He is the host of the incredibly popular Free Free Domain Radio podcast on freedomainradio.com and a towering force for the cause of liberty. Thanks so much for being here, Stefan. Wow, it's it's my pleasure. I'm just I'm just trying to think how I'm going to match that <laughs> very <laughs> kind description. I I feel I need to levitate. My head needs to go all the way around, and I need to have freed significant portions of the globe by the end of the podcast. So <laughs> I'm ready. I've got my game on. I'm ready to roll. We've set the bar pretty high for you. Well, so I mean, that's, excellent. <laughs> that was our expectation. So we'll, we'll try to we'll try to make that happen tonight. All, all right, right, I'm in. We have a, a, a kind of a, a, a tradition, uh, kind of like inside the actor's studio of, of beginning with the same question. And it's a question you've probably been asked a million times. And uh, like most of the questions uh, we ask, because you've done so many podcasts and, and, so, and written so much, uh, you know, you've, you've said probably everything, you've answered probably everything we'll, we'll, we'll ask tonight, but, but we'll try to keep it fresh. Either way, just like inside the actor's studio, we begin with the same question. How did you get here? How did you get to this political philosophy? And in, in, in succinct terms, in uh, the least boring way for you, uh, explain how you came to the philosophy of anti-statism, free market anarchism, voluntarism, libertarianism, that which goes by many names, but of course, you know, arose is, you know, by any other name. Uh, How did you get to this? How did I get here? Well, son, (laughs) it all started one night when my mama was so drunk she couldn't even lift the car out of the ditch. I'm going to do the whole interview in that voice. I'm just... (laughs) To be the voice of Mater in Cars 3. Um... (laughs) Well, uh, it, you know, it's it's. Um, I think it's pretty standard uh, for anybody who's in this. Uh, it's it's objectivism as the start, and love and galts gulch, and you know, at the end of Atlas Shrugged, and kind of realizing that there's no government there. I don't care what that smoky Russian vixen says elsewhere in her writings. Her ideal society has no government, and it was really just you know, I I mealy mouthed around the problem of things like voluntary taxation, and you know. Which is like uh, voluntary rape. It's just sort of a contradiction in terms. And I, you know, I just, I just gave up the ghost of minarchism after many years of debating and just becoming exhausted by my own incompetence at being able to square the circle called let's have a non-aggression principle, let's have respect for property rights, let's create a monopoly of violence to violate the non-aggression principle at will and eradicate property rights whenever it sees fit. You just can't square that circle. And after a while, you just, you just got to give up that ghost and say, okay, well, consistency is everything consistency is everything i mean if you're going to be into philosophy you've got to go for consistency otherwise you're just dealing in staggeringly neon lit opinions so uh so it really was just continuing to comb over that same beach until i finally you know found that roman coin called freedom boy that's a bad metaphor as if there was much freedom (laughs) around but uh, i think that's that's sort of where it went and then i started podcasting during my commute to work i used to work as a software executive and Eventually, people said, uh, donate. Uh, we'd like to donate. And so I said, well, okay, maybe I'll get some gas money. And then donations came in. And I went, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
that's nice. Idea, yeah. So, uh, so then I started. Well, then I sort of did a little bit of sideline, which was web uh, pole casting, uh, which is you you put a what do you do? You get sort of get a dancer's pole uh, in your in your room, and you you <laughs> grease yourself up, usually with fish or sometimes cod liver oil. Uh, you slap on a pair of sheepskin assless chaps, or sometimes it's just leotards, <laughs> and you shake your money maker until people pay you to stop. And then eventually, I just went back to philosophy and continued, and and there I stand. <laughs> All right, so, so origins. You just in, need a moment in... to scrub those visual images. That's what the pause is for. It's like uh, there's maybe... no amount of mental Clorox that will take that image out of my head. <laughs> maybe we do need a moment. <laughs> okay, so origins uh, in the philosophy of objectivism, uh, but obviously you moved away from that a little bit because uh, I think that in order to embrace the kind of market anarchism uh, that you are a, a proponent of, of which you are a proponent, uh, there are, it doesn't quite square with traditional objectivism. What are your no. thoughts? No, look, massive props to, to Ayn Rand and the objectivists. Uh, I'm still a 95% fellow traveler, but, uh, and in the realm of metaphysics or, or the nature of reality and epistemology, the nature of knowledge, I mean, you, 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 you have to beat those bushes pretty hard to, to find something that's, that's wrong. But in the realm of ethics, uh, I was never particularly satisfied, uh, you know, that which is proper for man, the rational animal, and so on. I, I had problems with that because if you look at somebody like, um, I mean, pick anyone, Bill Clinton. Uh, <laughs> Bill Clinton is a massive multi-millionaire philanthropist now because of his engagement in politics. Uh, he has been very successful in material, basic mammalian reproductive power. And so that which is good for man as a rational animal, well, the expansion of power in the sort of Nietzschean sense, the, 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 the drive for power uh, and uh, the drive to, to acquire resources, which is a sort of basic biological drive, is very rational in many ways to pursue. Mm -hmm. And so I've always been bothered by the fact, and this is tr this is true of all ethical theories I've encountered. And you know, please don't count me as any kind of <laughs> mega brain expert on them all. But uh, the problem with ethics is the people who most need it can't be convinced of it, right? So the people who are like real sociopaths or complete monsters or narcissists or whatever, you you can't corner them with ethics. Uh, they'll just make up whatever they want. And the people who are really interested in ethics and who's, who are susceptible to ethical arguments, well, they're kind of already good to begin with. So that's kind of an annoying situation. It's like you've got this perfect diet to make people lean and, and fit, but the only people who are interested in, in using it are people who are already lean and fit. Well, no, you've mm -hmm. you got to get the diet into the hands of the people who are 300 pounds and you know their foot's dropping off from diabetes. So that I really spent a huge amount of mental sweat trying to find an ethical crowbar which you can use to pry open even the most resistant mind, even the mind that is most contemptuous of or, or uh, uses uh, uh, morality as a kind of way of gaining power. This, again, it's not my idea comes out of Nietzsche and other people that most people use ethics because they want to gain power over their fellow human beings. So if I can convince you that something is wrong, uh, then you'll avoid doing it. And if I can convince you that something else is right, you'll pursue doing it. And all I have to do is align that what is good for you, what I tell you is good for you, turns out to be good for me. And whatever is bad for you turns out to be bad for me. And so, you know, what do you think? Okay. Well, let's you know, worship of the king is good and uh, rebellion is bad. And well, that's really good for the powers that be. So. I had a problem with the sort of what is best for man, the rational animal, 
uh, because there's lots of bad people who love to get power. And how do you how do you talk Bill Clinton out of wanting power or having power? How do you talk to Barack Obama and say, you know, it may seem like you got a sweet deal here, being the most powerful man in the universe, but you know, it's really not good for you. It's not good for your soul. <laughs> He's just, you know, what's he going to say? He's just going to say, well, no, I, this is this is what I've wanted. This is what I pursued. I've worked very hard to get it, and I'm really enjoying it. That's why they all go for a second term if they can. It's it's good to be king. And I don't know an ethical theory outside of the one that I'm working with called universally preferable behavior that solves that problem. That was number one. Number two is politics. Ugh. She's got the non-regression principle down and square, and then she just drives the truck of statism right over that little mass right. of freedom. That's my And so point. she says, well, you got to have a government. And the end of Atlas Shrugged, they try and fix the government. It's like, don't, do you want to just rewind the clock? Do you want to <laughs> just rewind this tape and have the same damn thing play out over again? Because that's what's going to happen. And yeah. so I think that she was tempted, right? She was tempted by trying to achieve something soon. You know, the the, the history of libertarianism, the history of the freedom struggle almost always is the myth of the tortoise and the hare, you know, that old myth or the old fairy tale yeah. where oh, yeah. the tortoise plods along and gets there, but the hare, oh, I'm so fast, I'll just leave footprints on the ceiling, fall asleep in the corner and lose the race. And so she got involved in politics, and politics is the great quagmire of the libertarian soul. Ah, I will get control of this evil institution, and I will turn it to good, and I will get people to vote, and I will get in there, and, you know, it's this alchemy will happen where the mafia will turn into the United Way based on the power of reason and argument and rhetoric. Well, it's a, you know, it's a will of the wisp. It leads you into the swamp and leaves you in the swamp. Right. So in the, yeah. So just in the realm of ethics and politics, I have deviations from objectivism. Uh, so really in more the application rather than the theory. Uh, but uh, those are the things that I have attempted to repair in, you know, an, ed an, an edifice that I hugely admire. Well, I'll slide a quick question in and then I'll, I'll, I'll uh, leave some questions uh, for my colleagues here. But you mentioned something that, that I think is quite interesting. And that is the <laughs> Wait, well. So you mentioned like many things. Oh yeah, which, which part? And it's like, come on, come on, come on, guys. Uh, okay, the whole thing's going to require a lot of editing. But in there, for about eight seconds of that ten-minute speech, I was actually quite interested. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. That, it was it was all incredibly interesting. We we have a ton of respect. I I, I know I have a ton of respect for what I you just do. thought it was kind of funny when you phrased it. But, but, I think I was in the last interview, an interview or two ago, I was called an, a premier tool of, uh, for liberty. And <laughs> I, I wasn't a sure tool. which way I was going to take that, but uh, I thought that the pole dancing might be my mess in my next best. <laughs> anyway, sorry, go on. Oh, tool belt for liberty. Maybe that's what they meant. No, that's, yeah. good, that's good. But, but well, I, I, I'm not even going to touch that one. Uh, <laughs> okay, but here's the thing. The, the paradox, right? of libertarianism and politics right now libertarianism um and and more so market anarchism are are, are basically strictly academic strictly philosophical i feel like that kind of declaws us a little bit i feel like that kind of gets rid of our teeth neuters us if you will um okay. but but what you put forth is this idea that even even uh, getting involved in the political spectrum at all, even voting, uh, becoming complicit with this system is worse. Uh, I, ju I just wonder sometimes. I mean, that this is really the paradox that, 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 that bothers me the most. 
what really is worse to, to kind of atrophy away in this kind of academic and philosophical realm or to be corrupted and uh, and and kind of homogenized by the political realm? Yeah, but I mean, you're you're saying it's it's academics and or philosophy or nothing. It's uh, sorry, it's academics, philosophy or politics or nothing. Right. Well, I, I just I see libertarianism kind of inhabiting both of those spheres, but I see it more so in the academic sense, and it's not having too much success. I mean, you, we can talk about Ron Paul, but for the most part, it doesn't have much success in the political sphere. And, and so the real argument is like, where should we dedicate our Wait, energy? Sorry, when you say it doesn't have much success. Libertarianism has struggled for about 300 years to control the size and power of the state. And, and since mm -hmm. classical liberalism 150 years ago, it's really had its foot, its pedal to the metal. Uh, and since the founding of the Libertarian Party in 71, it's had, you know, 40 years, uh, you know, it's had Ron Paul around for decades. Uh, and it's pumped hundreds of millions of dollars, untold hours, mountains of books. We've decimated forests arguing for liberty. Right. And... The government now is, what, 20 times the size as when we started? I mean, I don't think you can say that not having much success. The whole point was to, to either keep the government tiny or to reduce its size. We've got a 20 to 30-fold increase in the size of the state. Uh, that's not even counting uh, national debt. I don't think that that could be described as not having a lot of success. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, no, if I've got right. a thing where I, I say, listen, saying. I know you've got a tumor, the size of an orange, I've got something that's going to reduce it to the size of a pinprick. And then, you know, after my treatment, uh, it is about the size of a wrecking ball. I don't think we could say, well, that treatment could have, you know, it had had some success, but it just, <laughs> you know, if, if you don't mind putting your tumor in a wheelbarrow, you can still get around and, you know, we'll call that successful. Uh, oh, no, it's been yeah. a catastrophic, catastrophic clusterfrack of infinity in terms of its goals versus what it's achieved. Uh, do, do, do you see what I'm saying? I, and I I'm do, not I, trying to be personal about it. It's, no, that's those fine. Are the facts. I know. I do see what you're saying. I, I guess really the thrust of my question then is is where do you think we should we should put our energies in then? Well, we see. There's a devil in the world, lads. <laughs> There's a devil who steps with smoky footprints all over the souls of man. And that devil has one, you know, he's got a big fishing line. And on the end of that fishing line is this lure. And this lure says, take your philosophy and throw it out into the void so that it can never land on anything you can ever directly and personally affect. And that's where I want you to spend all of your energies. Pissing off a cliff into the wind so that your <laughs> pee disappears into the night, your vital fluids, your essence, your energy vanishes into nothing. And then annoying people like me come along and say, that is not right. If you're going to have values called the non-aggression principle and a respect for property rights, you do not focus on that which you cannot control. That is to say that all your values and all of your energies and all your philosophy is going to be ground into an impotent, useless dust. Spread to the four winds and you're going to beat your head into a bloody pulp and fall to the ground and call that, wow, I've dedicated my life to true freedom and liberty. No, what we do is we apply these principles to our own lives, to mm -hmm. our own lives. So in particular, I focus on parenting, on parenting, right? Hands up. Fantastic. How many of you were spanked or hit or paddled as children? A little of, bit. Of course. Yeah. Right. Was that a violation of the non-aggression principle? That's a really good question. <laughs> well, I don't think my mom would say that, but... <laughs> well, did you initiate force? No. I mean, 
to re- was it self defense on the I mean were you coming at them with a chainsaw was it self defense no, 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 it was an axe but not a chainsaw <laughs> <laughs> no but it was no. I mean you you it was not self defense on the part of the parents right no yes you're correct so that's the initiation of force and I'm not trying to you know say your parents are like satan or anything but no. the reality is that that is a violation of the non aggression principle that is a violation of self ownership it has empirically terrible bad results right i mean uh, it, 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 with the exception of you three guys, it reduces IQ uh, by three to five points. It increases social aggression. It increases peer problems. It increases uh, uh, tendencies towards criminality. And that's just spanking, let alone hitting and, you know, where you yelled at, where you called names. The, the amount of aggression within the family is something that the non-aggression principle and the respect for self-ownership and property rights has a huge amount to say about. Now, do we have more effect uh, if, you know, I don't know if you guys are parents, but if and when you become parents, do you have more effect... Uh, over whether you hit your children or not, or do you have more effect over the policy of the Federal Reserve? <laughs> I, I think that would be the former. I hope so. I mean, if not, <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, if <laughs> we had the opportunity to, me, to spank Ben Bernanke when he engages in <laughs> quantitative easing, I think we could have an effect on it. Right. I mean, imagine combining the two, the, the nastinesses and, and disciplining your children with fiat currency paper cuts. I mean, that's just, that's <laughs> a of right. But so there, there's an example, right? How about we just raise our children with, with respect to the non-aggression principle and self-ownership? You know, I'm, I've been a stay-at-home dad for three years, never hit my daughter, never raised my voice at her, never called her names, never threatened her, nothing like that. Because that's something I can do. I cannot change the government's policy uh, about military bases in, in the Middle East. I cannot change uh, the, the amount of national debt that is being piled on our shoulders. I cannot uh, change uh, the military industrial prison school complex. I can't. But what I can do is not use violence within my own home to raise my children, not use violence in my own relationships. And, of course, I can choose, <laughs> if I want, and I have chosen this on many occasions, to uh, say to people who are status and who, even after lengthy conversations and long periods of time and arguments, still advocate the use of force against me, I say, okay, look, I'm not breaking bread with you anymore. You can't be my friend if you want me thrown in jail for disagreeing with you. If you want a gun pointed at my head for my opinions, I cannot consider you a friend. Uh, that is a, a radical step, I understand, but that is called being consistent with your values. And these are things that we can do in our personal lives, and it is my absolute belief, and it's not just faith, that there's a lot of science to to show this, that if we raise uh, children peacefully, uh, they will not want power over others. They will not be drug addicts. They will not be criminals. They will not be promiscuous. They will not end up on welfare. They will not end up poor. Uh, they will be healthy, confident, able to think clearly. Uh, they will listen to and accept the validity and authority of reason and evidence rather than uh, powerful uh, human authorities. So the way that we build a stateless society is on the peaceful, free treatment of, of children. I mean, that is, you know, I said the tortoise and the hare. Well, the tortoise is plod, 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 generation after generation, better and better and better. We could have a paradise on this world if parents simply restrained from aggression and violence for five years. The first five years of their parents, of their children's lives, uh, that's all that we need. Of course, that's a big step for a lot of people, a lot of cultures. But that's what we know will work. You know, this chasing after the evil institution called the state and attempting to, you know, turn those bat wings into unicorn rainbows. I mean, it's just not going to work. Fantastic. I wish we could broadcast everything you just said to Israel. <laughs> you said you wish you could broadcast it what? Everything you just said to Israel. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I've got some Israeli listeners. <laughs> they don't like to admit it often. But <laughs> I do. 
You know, I kind of want to segue uh, into something you said earlier. Uh, you know, I'm excited where the liberty movement is now, especially with Ron Paul invigorating, reinvigorating Austrian ideas. We haven't seen anything like this since 74 uh, when Hayek won the Nobel Prize and, and Austrian ideas were on the forefront again. But there's a lot of libertarians who are very zealous about their devotion to the Constitution. And I'm afraid that we're going to kind of fall back into the same cycle where this Constitution has just fa it's failed to restrain the powers of government and it's going to fail again. I mean, I, I, and it's it's hard to convince people, you know, I mean, it, certainly all of us have kind of gone down that rabbit hole of, of being introduced to minarchism and, and Ron Paul and then kind of rejecting and, and, and being unable to justify uh, the powers of the state and, and, its, and its own responsibilities, you see that markets work a lot better. And eventually you have to admit to yourself that you're an anarchist. But I'm, I'm just, I'm really afraid. And, you know, I criticize all the libertarians for, for thinking that the Constitution is an effective tool for restraining the government because it's not. As you've mentioned earlier, government has grown exponentially over the past few decades. Yeah, look, I mean, the only thing worse than the Constitution not restraining the government is the Constitution restraining the government. Because when the Constitution restrains the government, and you could argue, you know, if you're willing to toss black slaves, women and children and poorer white men out of the equation and say that the for the first 60, 70, 80 years of the Republic, the government was restrained by the Constitution. Well, uh, what happened? Well, there was a huge massive explosion of wealth. Wherever the government is restrained, you get the resulting incredible productivity growth of free trade. I mean, just look at what's happening with India and China now, where the free trade principles have come into effect. Socialism, which was the horrible legacy of uh, the British Raj uh, to, uh, to India after the Second World War, and uh, China, which was uh, uh, gifted communism <laughs> through a variety of radicals uh, in the mid-20th century, They've cast that aside. They've they've minimized state presence in the economy relative to how it used to be. They've abandoned largely central planning, and they've turned people free to produce and trade and create wealth. So you've had a shrinking of the state, and what does that do? Well, that creates a huge amount of growth, a huge amount of cash, a huge amount of capital in the system. The government takes some of that capital and becomes much richer thereby, but what it does is it goes to bankers and says, hey, look, I've got really productive tax livestock. I'm going to borrow based upon their future productivity. So when you have economic growth in society, it is food for the cancer of the state because it creates the growth in the economy that the state uses as collateral to borrow and further indebt the people. And this is a universal mm. phenomenon. You can see it happening all over the world, particularly, of course, in North America and in Europe. You know, why are all democracies in debt? Well, I mean, for two reasons. One is that you can't have a democracy without debt because democracy is all about moving money around. And if you don't have debt, it's a zero-sum game. Right? So some people get rich, some people get poorer, and you can't create the illusion that you're somehow benefiting a group at the expense of no one, which is necessary for the spread of, or growth of the illusion of virtue, of demo democratic virtues. And the other is, is because this is what happens. You know, if you give uh, a gambler a huge amount of money, he doesn't stop gambling. He gambles more. He goes more into debt. He uses that money as collateral to borrow even more. I mean, it's a, the whole thing is a Ponzi scheme. So... I'm I'm even more scared of a government that is restrained by the Constitution uh, than I mean. Look, the, the American experiment is it should be the most illustrative and tragic experiment in statism in the history of the world. You started with the very smallest conceivable government that could be designed by the minarchists of the day. All of them stone geniuses. 
who put all the checks and balances that they could think and so on. And that very experiment in the very, very smallest government, according to the theory I'm putting forward, should have grown into the very largest conceivable government that the world has ever seen. The largest, most powerful government with the largest and most powerful weapons uh, and the largest majority of people in, um, in jail of any of the Western democracies. That's exactly what happened. Small governments lead to monstrous tyrannies. If you look at uh, England was the first country to experiment with free trade in the 16th and 17th centuries. 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, lo and behold, we have the British Empire because that's what the government does. Wherever you see economic freedom, you end up with massive corruption. Look at um, Japan after the Second World War had um, free market principles inflicted on it by the victors. And now they're, what, in their third decade of recession and depression because they're so unbelievably in their GDP, debt-to-GDP ratio is almost three to one. Mm. Uh, it's it's insane. Wherever you give the government money, you you enslave the future, you expand the government, uh, you corrupt the citizenry, you even further corrupt the leadership. Uh, and this is just a cycle that is so repetitive that it takes a willful ignorance of history to miss it. Wow, no, that's, that's incredibly no, hard to argue no. with. It was. <laughs> So, yeah, no, I don't want the I mean, I don't want the constitutionalist to lose, but I don't want them to win even more because imagine how big the government's going to get if it has 10 times the income, uh, you know, 50 years from now. That's another paradox of liberty. I mean, here we are, you know, Ron Paul, probably uh, the most friendly to our ideology uh, candidate to come along in, in, well, I don't know, ever. Uh, oh, Bob Barr was pretty great. You know, that guy. No, uh, Bob Barr was not great. <laughs> uh and, and sometimes but, we set the bar high and sometimes <laughs> we set the bar very low. <laughs> but but and and here we are and we we've supported him but you know there's almost this deification of the document of the constitution and just as you've illustrated you know even the smallest amount of government poisons the whole thing and it's going it's it's going to explode. But so, but what they're selling I'm sorry to interrupt but you you know what they're no, selling is they're selling Oh, I mean, politics, academics, right? All of these people who say that freedom is won through abstract arguments. Freedom is won through voting. Freedom is won through political action or, or, or giving people von Mises' books or, or Rothbard's books that, that, that you just need to throw these seeds of knowledge out and lo and behold, you're going to end up free or you just need to go pound some lawn signs, hand out some literature and donate money to Ron Paul and you'll be free. What people, I mean, look, I, I really, really respect the knowledge of the academics. I incredibly respect the the commitment and passion of the of the politicos, but I know what they're avoiding. I know what they're avoiding. There's this huge black hole called what the hell does this philosophy do to our personal relationships that everyone's avoiding. Everybody's hoping that that Ron Paul is going to bungee right in and solve the problem of statism for them so that they don't have to deal with their personal relationships. Everyone's hoping that some academic's going to write some book that's great enough and fabulous enough and powerful enough and unarguable enough and well-researched and evidenced enough that it's just, you know, people are going to repeal stuff left, right, and center. And, right, but that's mistaking what the state is. The state is not, the state is not a vertical thing that imposes itself upon us. You know, you, tell me, you guys go to, I, I was going to say dinner parties. How old are you guys? <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, oh, we're oh, mid-20s. Oh, we go to dinner parties. <laughs> you go, sorry, you're in your you wedding. You bet your ass. <laughs> oh, you go to dinner parties. But it's like potluck stuff, right? Come on. <laughs> and by potluck, emphasis on the pot. Anyway. No. Uh, <laughs> I went to a murder mystery. What kind of pot is in these brownies? <laughs> I'm completely stereotyping. But, uh, um, but uh, you, you go, I mean, if you go to family events or you go to whatever, a bunch of people who aren't necessarily uh, enlightened uh, in, in the way that we are, 
you start bringing up this stuff and how does it go? You, d you can definitely alienate people. You can definitely alienate people. Their eyes glaze sure. over mm -hmm. and they think you're crazy. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like what you said about the, the politically ideological brain. It rewards itself. They feel a reward whenever they dismiss ideas that are contrary to the political ideas that they have decided are correct. Right. And you so get people the, get they get a sort of enjoyment from from disagreeing with you. Yeah, it's a relief from anxiety. And and those glazed eyes, that that you know, slow step backwards, that that tension, that let's change the topic, that uh, unease, that hostility, that is the state. That is the state. It is our willingness to attack each other that is the foundation of state power. The, the, the state is not the laws that are imposed upon us. The state is everybody who screws with you in one way or another when you point out that the law is just an opinion with a gun and that we are mm. tax cattle and that our leaders do not uh, care for us because they spend our blood for useless wars and to, to bribe their friends and, you know, if the... And, but when you point out these basic, that taxation is forced, just something as simple as that, a three-sentence, unarguable statement, uh, taxation is forced. The state is our fellow citizens' willingness to attack, criticize, uh, vilify, uh, condemn, avoid, ignore, slander us when we simply base them. The government doesn't do that. I mean, I've never spent a night in jail uh, for my beliefs, but I have mm. lost... I don't know how many friendships and relationships based upon these basic realities. The state is not doing that. The state doesn't censor us at family dinners. That's our families that do that. The state right. doesn't censor us at potluck dinners or parties when we talk about the basic realities, which at this point we have to talk about. I mean, it's so late in the game that it's not like, you know, I don't know, 1950, you could be a little bit more relaxed about things. But, but now, I mean, given the economic problems <laughs> that are snowballing, uh, we kind of got it. You know, uh, we kind of got it. I mean, this is sort of like being a really good doctor when somebody's choking on a fishbone in the restaurant right now, like in the seat right next to you in a restaurant. You, you, you got to interrupt your dinner and go do something. So we have to do something. But the state, the, the, the repression, the, the silencing that happens is entirely horizontal. I mean, it doesn't need to be done top down because we do it to each other. And that's what politics can't solve. And that's what academics and, and Mises and Rothbard and, and all of these great thinkers and, and Rand, they can't solve that problem, that we're all so eager and willing to attack each other for whispering the truth in dark corners uh, or shouting it from the rooftops. That is the state. And people don't want to confront that in their personal relationships. They don't want to confront the reality of somebody, your brother sitting across the table basically saying, essentially saying, I want armed guys to come to your house, put guns to your neck and drag you off to prison indefinitely because you don't agree with me about how the poor should be helped or you don't agree with me about how education should be uh, provided or you don't agree with me about the goddamn roads right oh, people <laughs> want you thrown in jail for disagreeing with them they want you arrested that's screwed up man that's messed up in the extreme and until we confront that we're not going to solve the problem of the state because that is the state it's everyone cheering it's the, the leader that the makes state. the leader yeah. It's it's yeah it's it's proponents have. I'm never going to get into. I shouldn't do these late interviews where I get these topics. That just, <laughs> you know, I have to go and I have to go down and bring down a raw gazelle with my teeth now. <laughs> Eat it hard or something. Anyway, so go on. Yeah, go ahead, Sean. Oh no, it's just yeah, I I I I totally see that in in my life too. Where uh, I mean, some of my personal friendships have been affected by my own opinions, and it seems like 
these proponents have organized into uh, a church of the state where, I mean, forget criticizing the state, its own its own defenders, It's that's hard enough to deal with. Yeah. You know, they vilify you for it. So, uh, Stefan, uh, would that not mean that this is a a an issue of human society that even with the removal of the state that human beings would form these societies because this is this is a, a problem of of society and not necessarily the state no i don't i don't think so I, I, and let me <laughs> say what, what the hell do you care what i think let me sort of give you a bit a tiny bit of evidence that involves teenage sexuality so sure so pay attention uh, this will be followed by a short demonstration and a video. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Any volunteers? Look, uh, I don't know if you guys remember. Well, of course you do, because you're, you're closer to it than I do. Hitting puberty. Do you remember when you didn't think about sex much? Uh, and then, you know, your smelly bits start growing. You got hair coming out of everywhere. And suddenly that's all you can think about, right? You didn't need uh, propaganda for that, right? You, no. You didn't need a whole bunch. You didn't need like... Um, eight years of government indoctrination to accept that the naughty bits really should come in contact uh, as soon as humanly possible, right? It's just, it's just biology. It's just biology. You know, if, if I'm hungry, I, I don't need a government propaganda to, to get some food, right? So, so that which is natural for us does not require propaganda. But think of the amount of time and energy and... Ugh, resources that are poured into propagandizing children. Uh, I mean, what is the state? I think Brett Van Out of School sucks. It's like 15,000 hours. That they got you trapped just drilling this most inane, dusty-headed, nonsensical, chicken-breathed crap into your head uh, where they've got you so dazed, bored, and confused, and frightened that you'll say anything just to get to recess. And, I mean, God, I mean... <laughs> The punishment in school is staying in school. It's called detention. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, be like, <laughs> my daughter, you ate half a candy bar. Do you know what the punishment for that is? Another half of a candy bar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, that makes no sense. The punishment should be you have to leave school early. That should be the punishment. The punishment should not I mean when I was a kid, your punishment was staying in school and doing math problems. It's like, so basically, I'm being punished anyway because I'm in school too. Like, School is a punishment. School is, is a prison. School is a prison. Um, and so if people, if society was natural, if it was natural for people to organize themselves into violent hierarchies and to believe all this kind of nonsense, then we wouldn't need all this propaganda. It just wouldn't happen. You know, it's like, is it natural to believe that, um, I don't know, Jesus walked on water, um, you know, came back from the dead and, um, you know, was the was was born of a woman who was a virgin. No, because if, if that were natural to believe, you wouldn't need to teach it to, to kids. Because they just sort of, you know, they pick it up as they went along. But if you think of the amount of indoctrination that has to go into things that are unsustainable rationally, you understand that, that kids are very rational. Kids are incredibly rational. My, my daughter understands that she's three. That means three times around the sun and the solar system. You know, we, we got them. We, we've done it with fruit and all that, you know. So she, she's really, she doesn't mind things that look kind of weird. You know, hey, the moon and the sun, they're not exactly the same size. In fact, they're not even close to the same size. They just look the same size because one's closer and one's further. She understands. We've got no problem with any of that. Shifts in perspective and stuff. But, you know, uh, a guy who lives in the sky who is invisible has lived forever uh, and 
and yet rules everything and uh, gives you free will but interferes, knows exactly what's going to happen, punishes you anyway. Like that stuff is just it's a Mobius strip in the head, right? It's a pretzel. So that which is natural to us does not require endless enforced repetition. That which is unnatural to us must be propagandized. And uh, that's not a, and it's not a complete proof, but that's sort of an evidence that when you look at society, you're looking at the result of intensive propaganda, not what is natural to the human soul. I think, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It does. <clears throat> um, Stefan, uh, we've talked, we talk a lot Sorry, about... Uh, nobody's mentioned anything about the promise demonstration. Should we just... <laughs> I, uh, I was trying to. Uh, I was trying Eeny, to meeny, miny, Which one? Suddenly move be? away from it. Well, none of us are teenagers, so we, <laughs> we'd, have, we'd have to go out and find back. some teenagers. We've got. I've got some in the back. You've got some in the back. I shouldn't have told you that. But I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, our laws in Oklahoma. Our laws in Oklahoma are really uh, strict about this, Stefan. We 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 might need to. Uh, we might need need to just uh, sweep this one under the rug. <laughs> but um, funny because we talked a lot about French made outfit, so. We, with mine, so maybe not. Okay, go on. Let's go on with them. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've talked a lot about the U.S. or like uh, the United States. Um, one thing that we were just kind of wondering is, you know, how uh, how how common are is this idea of liberty in Canada? Are there a lot of people receptive to it? Well, you know, we fall closer to the left. We don't have quite the same left-right paradigm, although. Our righties are much more palatable to, palatable to me than your righties, right? Because you've got righties like Centaurum, who right. seems to spend a lot more time thinking about gay sex than even gay men do. Mm -hmm. yeah, and, I just made that comment before on the show. Yeah, I mean, yeah. isn't that crazy? I mean, you know, he, you just know he's, he's going through, like, you know, J. Crew bikini briefs catalogs, just going, oh, this is just so simple. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, look at those. <laughs> And in the sunshine, like twin tears. <laughs> I mean, you just know he's just so. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's so... Just, he, well, he's a religious fascist. That's all really you could say about him. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't have righties that way. And we don't have righties uh, who have this bizarre, disjointed Republican thing where it's like within the great biodome of reality called the United States, we should have freedom and peace and non aggression. But once we step off these shores, we need to rain unholy godfire on every turban head the world over. Yeah. I mean, we, just, we don't have that weird disconnect where reality reverses itself the moment you step off the shores of the waving plains. Uh, we have righties here, you know, kind of fiscal conservatives. They don't get the religious aspect. But we're, we're more lefty, which means that the violence that is invisible to us is the violence of, like, social programs and, and, and health care and, and education in the same way that for the Democrats, that's helping people, whereas the right. people on the right in America look at that and say, well, that's social engineering, and that's really bad, and that's violence, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, the, you know, but the ones on the left, they accurately identify the horrors of neoconservative foreign policy uh, and objectivist foreign policy, which has had, I think, a more important effect on American foreign policy than most people realize. When you're a third of Americans claim to have read Atlas Shrugged, uh, you know, it's going to have an effect on foreign policy. Right. Ayn Rand was very aggressive that way. So... Yeah, I mean, here you can get people to understand that, you know, war is bad and so on. And, and there's much more tolerance for drugs up here. In fact, if it wasn't for pressure from the U.S., I'm absolutely positive that marijuana would have been legalized here uh, already. But so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a kind of weirder, gentler kind of culture in that it does not like the gun-worshipping, bomb-worshipping, military-worshipping 
uh, aspect of the U.S., right? Uh, and there's mm, some fundamentalism, but not in-your-face kind of fundamentalism. Uh, but getting people in Canada to recognize that, you know, the socialism that we got from our mega-Marxist uh, tool job called Pierre Elliott Trudeau uh, was just catastrophic uh, for the nation. I mean, our guy in the 70s, our prime minister in the 70s, was such a goddamn socialist that Castro sat down with him and said, I'm thinking of liberalizing the economy and bringing in free market reforms. What do you think? And he said, no, we're trying to get to where you are. Uh, we love uh, communism and Marxism and that kind of socialism. That's what I'm trying to get to where you are. And it's like, what a great side to be on in history, Pierre. What a fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> there. Uh, so, yeah, it's, so it's a little different up here. But, I mean, the challenges are, are essentially the same, that... Um, uh, people look at uh, universal health care as a great thing, as if access to waiting lists is the same as access to health care. It's just a delusion that, that we have that's really hard to penetrate. I think I think uh, the, a lot of the differences come from the fact that in, in America we are we're, we're poisoned by this this mechanism of of this gargantuan military industrial complex that I I don't believe uh, really affects Canada as much. I mean, it that's, really. Yeah. I mean, it honestly, when when you really uh, distill things down to their essential elements here, uh, the military-industrial complex has its fingers in every pie and pretty much controls everything from economic policy uh, forward. Well, and I mean, you put in the the prison-industrial complex, and you have a, you know pretty unholy set of bedfellows. Right. Absolutely. I'm sorry, you're all shocked that that was a short comment, right? <laughs> sorry. I just, yeah, yeah. Was, you know, it every now and then I change direction completely and I... I actually, <laughs> <laughs> all right, com com let's get comfortable. He's starting to talk. What? He stopped? What? <laughs> <laughs> Please warn us. Um, let's see. Okay, well, I've, I've got a question then. I think that in order to be a proponent of a stateless society, that is to say an anarchist, of course, uh, one must simultaneously hold the belief that mankind is inherently good, or at least, right, reject the Hobbesian ideal that we must live under a kind of mother state that will rein us in from, you know, destructive behavior towards each other, etc. But while maintaining an understanding that historically human beings have a propensity to dominate each other, uh, given the opportunity, is this kind of an inconsistency, do you see, in in the uh, anti-statist <laughs> philosophy? Uh, or is, uh, well, it, is it inherently optimistic? Or, or is it, does it just give enough room for, for the, the, uh, the reality of history? Yeah, I mean, this is the argument that people need to be good for us to not have a state. Or people need to mostly be good for us to not have a state. And... I have sort of two answers to that. One is that, you know, people will be good if they're raised without violence as children. I mean, and again, I hate to harp on that, but it just, you know, I got to go where the facts are. I've got to go really where the, the science is. Uh, if we raise children peacefully, ex you know, absent brain tumors and, and blows to the head, they're going to be peaceful. The, the, the brain develops in a fundamentally different way when you're raised without aggression, trauma, and violence. So, yeah, I mean... The vast majority of people will be good and peaceful and and uh, courageous and and not into exercising brutal power over each other. All of that comes from a brutalized childhood. Again, that's not just my opinion. I got uh, I'll 
bore your listeners with this if they want to go through it. It's really, really important stuff. Uh, FDRURL.com forward slash BIB. It's called The Bomb in the Brain, The Effects of Childhood uh, Abuse on on the brain, on the the, um, the hippocampus, the, the neofrontal cortex, and all that. You get a massive increase in the fight or flight. You get a reduction in neofrontal cortex. In other words, you're really impulsive, and you don't think about the consequences of your decisions, which is really the foundation for politics and criminality. Oh, but I repeat myself. Um, and so, well, I mean, yeah, yeah, sorry, you raise, raise people peacefully, they'll be peaceful. But, but even if that doesn't occur, let's say that doesn't occur, or let's say that that's completely wrong. I got my ass, uh, yeah, I got my head up my ass about that and I'm completely wrong. I would argue that only a stateless society recognizes the reality of human evil. Because you can only believe that the government is going to protect you from human evil if, if you imagine somehow that evil people have never heard of the government. And have never said, wow, a monopoly of violent power. I wonder if that could help me in my nefarious <laughs> ends. <laughs> I wonder if I could get a hold and use this violent power to propagandize children into believing that everything I do is good and that they need me uh, to, to, uh, to destroy the family and create new generations of criminals, to scare the general population with, to start wars, to run up debt. Because, you know, what do evil people want? They want two things. They want something for nothing, and they want a lack of accountability for their actions. That is the definition of what the government does. It gives people mm -hmm. stuff for nothing through uh, forced transfer of wealth or through inflation or through debt. They give people something for nothing, and they are excluded from accountability for their actions. How many cops go to jail? How many politicians go to jail? I mean, a third of the Congress uh, has uh, significant criminal problems. They never go to jail. Exactly. And so it is a recognition of the reality of human evil. That means you can't have a state. I mean, it's, you can't have a monopoly of power and expect that that's not going to draw evil people to run it like flies to shit. I mean, that's, you, you recognize right. that flies like shit, so you don't create a big pile of shit in the middle of society for the flies to go. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. That's pretty great. Did you want to ask your Rachel Maddow question? Oh, I mean, sure, sure. It's it's, a, I mean, it's up to you. Yeah, I, I don't... You don't oh, agree oh. with me, you just don't want any more scatological metaphors, right? <laughs> no, no, no. Hey man, I'm trying to eat oh, over here. Sure. <laughs> no. Uh, no, did it, go ahead, go ahead, just just unload all the, all the uh, scatological metaphors you want. Uh, Okay, so I think even using the word "unload" was eschatological. Anyway, I think that's I, I I think that was uh, deliberate. Uh, okay. Well, all right, all right. Let's let's move on a little bit to uh, to the anti-war left or the illusion of the anti-war left. This is something that's that's a big pet issue for me. Um, Rachel Maddow, in a recent interview about her her anti-war text "Drift," this is her new book. Uh, stated she doesn't believe that there are people in government who are trying to keep the American people in a disaffected state from the wars. And I'm paraphrasing here, but... Sorry, she, sorry, does... she doesn't... Sorry, just want to make sure I understand that. Sounds important. She doesn't yeah. believe that the U.S. government is trying to keep people in a disaffected state about the wars. I'm not sure what that means. She... she do... Okay. The thrust of her theory is that our wars don't hurt anymore. They don't affect people on a basic level. Whether it be the raising of a tax, uh, the rationing oh, right. of goods, etc., and and we don't see, uh, you know, the dead come home. We don't see the body count, etc. And she doesn't believe that that's deliberate. Uh, she doesn't believe that's deliberate. Okay. No, she doesn't. And and that's what she said on this interview. She said she doesn't believe the state is attempting to hide the real financial and human cost of these wars from the people. Is this naivete 
uh, of the subversiveness of the state, the reason why the anti-war left has failed, why it has no teeth, and why is it, do you think, that they remain blind to the tyranny of the state, even though they claim to be an anti-war movement? Wow, that's, uh, that's a good question. Uh, just before we dive into that, I mean, you heard about this guy who allegedly got drunk, ran off the base, shot up a bunch of Afghani civilians and children, went back to the base, I think drank some more, ran out, killed, I think, a total of 17, as he's, he's charged with, right? Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. mm -hmm. And there was this article in the paper the other day about, you know, this seems to have really affected people's view of the war. You know, the fact that some civilians have been killed. And it's like, some? are you freaking kidding me? Yeah. What is it, 11 years into this damn war, and 17 Afghanis get killed, and suddenly people are like, hey... I think some Afghanis are getting killed. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I, I don't even know what to say about that. That's, I mean, that's just so completely bizarre. That's like a 40-year-old guy cooking, dropping an egg and going, hey, they fall down. <laughs> <laughs> they break. I, 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 I don't know what to make of that. I mean, man, oh, alive. It's uh, that's just such willful ignorance that... Yeah. I mean, I don't even know. Anybody who said yes in that should never be allowed to vote. Because, I mean, if you can't tie your shoelaces, if you don't know where your front door is, and you don't know that civilians are getting killed in a war, then I don't even know how you can... Anyway. So, yeah, the Maddow thing. Well, I, I mean, in some ways, I kind of agree with her, um, but probably not for the reasons that she would state. There is no law that says to any American publication that I know of, you cannot print the pictures of Afghani dead or Iraqi dead. You can only pick, uh, print the pictures of American dead, right? There's no law that, that an editor would go to jail for printing the pictures of Afghani dead. No, but nobody not. does it. Nobody does it. It's a wonderful proof for anarchy, right? Because you don't need laws when there's social consensus. Because it's, it's much more powerful than a law to have social consensus. Okay, so you tell me. What would happen if um, Time magazine or... or the Washington Post or the New York Times or whatever, ran a whole issue uh, listing off the Afghani dead who had died in the previous month from, uh, or the Iraqi dead or both, who had died. What would happen to that, to that paper? Fox News would lose their minds. They would just completely, uh, and, and not just Fox News, but I mean, they, they would be trashed. Yeah, but they don't care about that because that's controversy. That's good for business. What, what would happen okay. that would hit them where it hurts? Uh, people would uh, not renew their subscriptions? Yes. Yes, but some people might start subscriptions based upon that. It would be even worse than that. Okay. Tell me. Well, um, what's happening to Rush Limbaugh at the moment for his comments? You're talking about his advertisers. advertisers. Yeah, advertisers would pull, right? Yeah. yeah. Advertisers pull. And your toast, I mean, these, these uh, particularly newspapers these days don't have a lot of cash on hand in general. Usually they're in debt. Yeah. No. And so if the advertisers pull, um, then, you know, there's just a smoking crater where the paper was, right? But then this is beautiful. I mean, this is, uh, what if an, I mean, what a horrible thing to live in, but what an amazing proof of the fact that a state is not necessary to enforce things. Definitely. Well, so yeah, if she I understood, mean... right, so, so what is she going to say, there is a conspiracy? Well, no, she can't because she's got no proof of that, right? So people would say, well, where's your proof of the conspiracy? And she'd say, well, I don't have any, but I can call it conspiracy anyway, right? So then she has no credibility. And, and, and rightly so, because, I mean, if you claim conspiracy without proof, that's not very responsible, right? 
Right. Well, that, that that's great to hear. That's that's great to hear in the in the liberty movement because I think sometimes we have a propensity to accept uh, uh, conspiracy theories at face value. But uh, yeah, no, I, your your point is is well taken. But but what she should be saying, what she should be saying, of course, and but she's right in that the, the war is relatively painless. And and the reason it's painless is, of course, it's diluted by debt. Right. I mean, uh, if the government cranked up your taxes by double to go and invade Iraq, uh, there'd be probably be a whole lot fewer people ra- waving flags and you know calling for the slaughter of, of innocents. No, but um, so it's diluted through debt, uh, and it's diluted through fiat currency, through the overprinting. And so, you know, how many people can piece together the thousand steps it takes from them cheering the invasion of Afghanistan or Iraq to the fact that they got their house foreclosed on? seven years later. I mean, they, they, how many people can follow that causal chain? Probably not one in 10,000. Or, you know, why did I lose my job? Well, because I cheered for this war. I mean, people, not only do they not want to take that responsibility, and not only is nobody explaining that, but it's really hard to figure out anyway. Uh, so, you know, overprinting of money uh, and a relative lack of competition because all of the European economies are going down the tubes, uh, as is China. Um, so in a way, it is a kind of pain-free war in that it's really, the, the pain that's coming in is very visceral, but it's very oblique. And it's one of the reasons why I have much less sympathy for people who are complaining about losing their houses and, and losing their jobs. It's like, well, did, did you cheer for the wars? Well, you know, you reap what you sow. Right. And if you didn't spare a thought to the Afghanis and, and a million Iraqis getting blown up and millions more getting dispossessed and they got no electricity, they got no medicine, they got no running water, they've got cholera, they've got medieval illnesses that haven't been seen in the neighborhood for centuries. Uh, if you didn't spare a thought for them but just went around uh, cheering whatever warmonger currently grabbed the microphone, then the fact that all that's happened to you is you've lost their house while all that's happened to them is they've lost half their family, you're actually getting off kind of scot-free. And your yeah. misery will continue to increase until you empathize with the victims of your masters. That is a almost an iron rule in society. Until we have empathy for the victims of our masters, we continue to get closer and closer to that level until we just, in all humility, learn to give two shits about the people our cheers send the bombs into. Absolutely. Well, uh, unless uh, you know Sean or Alan uh, have anything else uh, to say, or if uh, or to ask, or if uh, you, Stefan, uh, have anything you just feel like talking about, I've got uh, one last question, and we'll wrap it up. Oh yeah, listen, just before we do, um, for I mean, I've had a chance to you you mentioned my website at freedomainradio.com. Uh, please, please make sure that my listeners uh, who might be listening to this on my stream get get your information and any anything that you guys are up to shortly. Oh, absolutely. And also, that reminds me, uh, I was going to, to plug that video, uh, The Bomb in the Brain, uh, on freedomainradio.com. Everybody, everyone listening to this podcast who, who doesn't already go to freedomainradio.com has got to watch this video. Uh, it is an unbelievable illustration of the way that we think uh, ideologically, politically, the way we think about violence, the way we react to things. Uh, you've just got to see it. You, you, everyone has got to watch it. Uh, as far as we're concerned, uh, we are uh, libertyminded.org or facebook.com slash libertyminded. Uh, we are a um, small, now, uh, libertarian think, bank, think tank uh, based in Oklahoma, uh, and uh, we uh, produce uh, essays, uh, videos, uh, etc., uh, based on 
the topics of uh, of uh, liberty, and uh, basically we try to look through all sorts of topics, political and otherwise, through the lens of liberty. That's that's our uh, that's our mo. So, uh, one sorry, are you guys going to be? Um, are you guys going to to the Porcupine Freedom Festival at all, or Libertopia, or any other place um, where we may actually be in the same same neighborhood? Okay, well, we would uh, love to do something like that. Uh, and also, if you're ever down in our neck of the woods, please give us a call. We'll buy you a beer. Uh, but um, that's kind of that's kind of far from us. Uh, I I don't know if uh, if we'll be able to make it up this year. Do you have a donate page uh, on your website? No, not not as of yet. We will. Well, I put we a will. donate page up, and any of my listeners who are listening to this, who were thinking of donating to me, donate to these guys so they can drive or fly out to one of these events because they're just fantastic. I'll be, uh, you know, speaking at at Porkfest. I'll be hosting uh, master ceremonies at Libertopia. Uh, so send some money to these guys so they can get out to one of these Liberty festivals to pump their show, to meet people, to get energized through the community because I think it's really important. It can be kind of an isolating thing to, you know, be the lone candle of truth in the high wind of cultural bullshit. So, uh, you know, donate to these guys Especially and, and get them on the road. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's how we feel out here in the middle of the, <laughs> the, the plains of the United States. But, uh, Stefan, uh, we're very humbled. Thank you so much uh, for your plug. It's been such a pleasure to have you on. If you wouldn't mind, just one more question, and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah, please. Uh, with uh, this what what I think we will see as Ron Paul's last run for the presidency, it seems to have kind of invigorated in the youth of America, at least, uh, and probably elsewhere, uh, reinvigorated a um, an interest in the philosophy of liberty, and hopefully, once again, that they can uh, these youth can go down that rabbit hole and eventually come to the conclusion of anarchism. Where do you see? Uh, what will this, what will it rot? <laughs> Where do you see uh, this uh, increased interest in libertarianism or anarchism in the youth going in the near future, and where would you like to see it go? Oh, good. So you dropped me a nice, easy question to close off with this. It's going to come back to haunt I'm me. Sorry. We're going to go to Mars and beyond. Um, <laughs> Well, look, I, I'm never going to complain about people who come to philosophy from oblique, in oblique ways. If it comes through politics, if it comes through objectivism, if it comes through, you know, wherever. I think, you know, it's great to get you started. The only thing that I would say to people is don't assume and don't stop. Don't assume that where you think freedom can come from is where it can actually come from. Be critical, be skeptical, and for heaven's sakes above, please, people, look at history. You know, those who do not remember the past are always condemned to repeat it. We have, in 2012, significant statistical, historical, real reasons to be skeptical of the value of political action. Uh, read Brian Kaplan's The Myth of the Rational Voter. Um, uh, read my How Not to Achieve Freedom book. Um, just just be skeptical. People have been trying to solve the problem of the state through politics, through voting, through laws, through repealing laws for literally thousands of years, and more specifically, 300 to 150 years to 40 years from you know Adam Smith to classical liberalism to modern political libertarianism. And where we've ended up with is the largest, most indebted, most heavily armed, most powerful, most 
aggressive state that the world has ever seen. That is not a good track record. That does not indicate that we are going in the right direction. Academia and politics are interesting ways to begin the journey. Do not assume that that is where the journey will end. Be skeptical of it. Be skeptical of it. There are things that you can do in your own life that will have a much more powerful and foundational, verifiable, turtle getting over the finish line, not here running around the tree till it falls over, way of getting to the future. Be peaceful with your children. Do not aggress in your relationships. Confront those who support the aggression against you with the reality of the gun that they're introducing into your relationship. Make the violence of the state real to people. However much they squirm and avoid it, it's something we need to show them. The gun in the room that is there when people say there ought to be a law, that is there when people say you must pay your taxes, that is there when people say you must obey the law no matter how unjust, that is there when people say you must fund government education, that is there when people say, by God, we've got to help the poor through the state, when people say, how can we have a world free from war, war because I can't figure out how the free market might build a goddamn road? Confront people with the violence Amen. that they accept and advocate within the system. Live peacefully within your own family and particularly with your own children. That is the sure, scientific, statistical, valid path to a free and peaceful future. Do not get distracted by the easy, quick heroin hits of writing books, reading books, and, and going to political rallies. It may make you feel good, but it is knocking bricks down of the road that we need to build. It's not putting them one in front of the other. It's backbreaking. It's slow. It's laborious. And I guarantee you it will get us there. Fantastic. Well, uh, we are incredibly humbled and to have uh, shared this evening and this conversation with you. Thank you so much. It's, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. We hope to have you on sometime in the future. Uh, thank you so much, Stefan Melanou, for uh, being on Liberty Minded this evening. It's my absolute pleasure. That's libertyminded.org. Yes, yes. libertyminded.org. Liberty, libertyminded.org. Uh, guys, it was my absolute and total pleasure. Um, it was a great deal of fun. Uh, just give me a ping anytime. I'm back. All right. All right. Have Thank a you. great evening, sir. Take care.